0: Good morning, and and uh, happy Happy Palm Sunday uh, to everyone as we uh, prepare uh, to celebrate and remember uh, this most uh, auspicious week in the life of our Lord and in the history of the world. Um, throughout the uh, past years, I have always been on the lookout for good uh, resource material with regard to helping uh, in my devotional life, and, and I have passed those recommendations on The Voices from the Past, which are some Puritan readings and others. Uh, Recently, I bought um, a devotional called Be Thou My Vision, which was compiled by Jonathan Gibson. And in it, he has uh, prayers that are listed for each of the various days and and special occasions. And so this being Palm Sunday, uh, please join me in prayer. It's a a written prayer, but it's it's also one I think that is appropriate. So please join me in prayer as we go to uh, hear the word after this. So, almighty and everlasting God, of your tender love toward man, you sent our Savior Jesus Christ to take upon himself our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility, mercifully grant that we both follow the example of his patience and be made partakers of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we thank you for the the coming of your Son. We thank you that you gave your only begotten Son and that Christ came willingly, that he, in agreement with you from the foundation, before the foundation of the world, had covenanted together the the triune God, coming together in agreement that humanity would be redeemed through the self-sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we remember this Palm Sunday, as we know, Lord God, uh, the events that will transpire this week, and the Lord himself, knowing that these things would take place, gave himself not only for the demonstration of your great love for us, but giving himself to the cross, to the rejection of the very creation that he formed. Uh, We ask, Lord God, that you would speak to us now from your word, that we would be in awe and moved by that awe to worship and to serve you, to love our neighbor as ourselves. For this we ask in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Someone had asked me before the, the service this morning, did I time uh, the reading of Zechariah 9 with Palm Sunday? And yes, I did. <laughs> it was purposeful. Uh, it, it, the Lord worked it out. Uh, so you'll, you'll recognize uh, part of this because we've already read it from Matthew's Gospel. So in Zechariah uh, 9 begins, uh, the, oracle of the, Lord, uh, the, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrak, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow shall go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down with the sling stones They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. It's a marvelous picture of God not only coming to the vindication of his people, but then also the salvation and raising them up from the dust of the earth to restore and renew them. And we read that part, the verses um, 9 through 13, that event, obviously, which Zechariah prophesied about, we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. The events of the first Palm Sunday recorded in uh, Matthew's Gospel, which we just read, where Jesus sends two of his disciples to go into a village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me, he said. And if anyone asks or says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. And then Matthew adds this commentary. This took place, he writes, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah makes this prophecy about 500 years before Jesus actually appears there on um, Palm Sunday in Jerusalem, there in Matthew's Gospel. And it's important to know that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. It's important to know that the Word of God is consistent and does have truth and power to it. Just as important to know that, as you notice as I read through Zechariah 9, is the context of out of which Zechariah makes this prophecy. And the context of uh, this prophecy with regard to the coming of the king riding on a donkey is God's vengeance against the enemies that have plundered Israel. And we'll take a a closer look at those verses 1 through 8 and the rest uh, in a couple of weeks once we are are past Easter Sunday. Uh, But for now, just to summarize what's going on in verses 1 through 8, Just to sort of keep these things in mind, just remember that the Lord keeps a watchful eye over all humanity in order to protect his people, that's verse 1. The vengeance of God exposes the folly of trusting in wisdom, wealth, and power, that's verses 2 to 4. And the power of God, and I like this word, I chose it deliberately, the power of God discombobulates his enemies, verses 5 and 6. And then the grace of God saves people by giving them new life. That's verses 7 and 8. So that's really sort of an overview of verses 1 through 8. Uh, they're connected, they are, these, those first eight verses. If you go back a couple of chapters, you go back to chapter 6, what happens in verses 1 through 8 are connected to Zechariah's vision of the four chariots. And then as verses 1 through 8 unfold, we start with Damascus in the north, and then God's chariots of vengeance move progressively south until he has vanquished all of Israel's enemies and then he arrives in Jerusalem and there he sets up camp, making sure that no one will ever again invade the holy city, which then takes us back to Zechariah 2 and Zechariah's third vision where God promises to be a wall of fire around his holy city and the glory in their midst. This city that has no walls, that is ever expanding, this city which is the the kingdom of God, the, the church which is populated by God's people, a kingdom that is protected by the Lord himself as he is also the glory in their midst. All of this then sets the stage for what happens in verses 9 through 13, which is the coming king. Because when Zechariah delivers this prophecy, the closest thing that Israel has to a king is our old friend Zerubbabel, who is the acting governor of the territory and in all likelihood a descendant of King David. And Zerubbabel, together with the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, along with others, were among the first Jews to be sent back to Jerusalem by the Persian king Cyrus. They were sent back there to ostensibly rebuild the temple, and then later on when Nehemiah arrives, uh, sometime later, he, Nehemiah leads in the reconstruction and rebuilding of the wall around the city. The thing is, of course, that despite being back in their homeland, they are still under Persian rule. And so in desperate need of being reminded that God, in keeping his promise to send them back, is indeed giving them a hope and a future, God sends the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and later on Ezra and Nehemiah, to encourage Zerubbabel and the Jews to finish the work that God has sent them to do. That they need to be reminded that God is keeping and fulfilling His promise, even though they are still living as a captive people. That their hope is in Him, That their trust is to be in him, despite living in uh, an environment that does not give them complete freedom. When you think about it, there's uh, not a whole lot of difference when you move from Zechariah to what transpired on that first Palm Sunday. We are still a people who are hungry for a hope and a future. We are still searching for something real something that's solid, something on which we can fix our hope that we can then build a future, that we are eager to find something or someone who is dependable, that we can believe in. And some have, in, in searching for this hope and latching on to this desire, want to do so through the gaining of political power or controlling uh, the courts. Some have fixed their hope, by attaching themselves to a variety of addictive behaviors, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography, and still others have fixed their hope on being an influencer and gaining followers on every available social media platform that there is, or inventing their own. Human history, it seems, is populated with people who are searching for peace, for purpose, and permanence. It's also populated is human history with plenty of people promising that they know the path to peace, purpose, and permanence. But if, as they say here in the New York City area, if there is a light for every broken heart on Broadway, there is likely a broken heart for every broken promise made by every false prophet in our post-truth world. And despite our best efforts to Search for and latch on to something that provides peace, purpose, and permanence. We are still realizing that that cannot be achieved by human means. That the peace, the purpose, and the permanence that we are looking for, that we were built and created to yearn for and to sustain ourselves, does not come from anything man made, does not come from within, does not come from anything that this world has to offer. And so as we begin to realize that, and perhaps even despair of that, that's when we hear this word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in this world where we see very little that offers us real and sustainable hope, in the midst of this comes one who is hope incarnate. One who promises and delivers on that promise by being in his own person, the very hope and future that we desire and long for. Who is the peace, who is the purpose, who is the permanence that we have been created to desire and to fulfill? And that's where we pick up the narrative, really, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 21. Because when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, when he has prophesied as coming here in Zechariah, he does so as no false prophet. He makes no false promise. He is, we know this. no ordinary man. He is the God-man. He is divine and human. He is the, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He stepped down from eternity to live among us as God in human flesh. He did this because only Jesus can give us the peace, the purpose, and the permanence that we so desperately seek. Only he can establish peace between God and us. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a donkey because he came in peace to make peace. He came in peace, really, to make peace between God and us. And then once once there is peace between God and us, then we can make peace between ourselves. So in verse 9, as we unpack these middle verses, 9 through 13... In verse 9, we see that Jesus establishes peace between God and us on the basis of his perfect character. So we've read the verse. Jesus is the only person in all of history who fits the description of this coming king. His arrival at first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem, his arrival is God's keeping his promise to give his people a hope and a future in stark contrast to every human leader that has ever come and risen to power and fallen from power, only Jesus has a character and a leadership that is the personification of righteousness, salvation, and humility. He is described by Zechariah as salvation, having salvation is he, There's a double meaning to that phrase. On the one hand, having salvation as he means that Jesus himself knows what it's like to be saved. He hung on a cross between earth and heaven as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And when he breathed his last, he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And we know that Christ's mission as that atoning sacrifice was validated and vindicated by God when on the third day he rose from the dead, that God saved him, if you will, from the grave, saved him from the unjust and oppressive treatment that he received at the hands of sinful men. So Jesus knows what it's like to be saved. He knows what it's like to be rescued. And on the other hand, because he is the one in whom salvation is, We know that he is also the one who provides and brings the very salvation that we need. Who brings with that salvation the peace, the purpose, and the permanence. He brings salvation by dying on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He does that, he then makes peace between God and us. He makes the reconciliation between a holy God and an unholy humanity possible by his death. He is righteousness incarnate. And unlike those wielding political power or even attempting to legislate from the court, Jesus can always be trusted to do the right thing by doing justice with integrity. The very thing that Zechariah has already prophesied about, that that is what God's people are to be typified and characterized by. Conducting ourselves with integrity, doing justice, loving kindness, seeking to lift one another up rather than to at the other's expense, raise ourselves above them. But Jesus lowers himself that we might be lifted up. He can't be bribed. He can't be intimidated. He can't be canceled. And we can trust Jesus to save us because he always does the right thing for the right reason in the right way at the right time. And we must trust Jesus to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And maybe you're wondering at this point, well, if he's all of these things, then why does he come on a donkey? Why not on something more majestic? Well, there are several reasons why he chose a donkey. The first is that in the early history of Israel, donkeys were often ridden by kings and tribal rulers. Uh, The judges, if you go back and read the book of Judges, who were people that God raised up to deliver Israel when they fell into the hands of oppressors, the judges also rode donkeys. When David was on his deathbed and he tabbed Solomon to be his replacement, to be king in his place... David's assistants ran out and the first thing they did was they grabbed the donkey and put Solomon on top of that donkey and then rode him into Jerusalem announcing him as king. So when Jesus rides that donkey into Jerusalem, it was as much a sign of his divine royalty as it was anything else. An indication that his reign would be characterized by righteousness and humility and justice and truth and, and goodness. There's another reason why that he rides a donkey, and that is has to do with humility, that he is rejecting all of the, the, if you will, the paraphernalia of power, that he puts aside what we would associate with human authority. He doesn't ride in on a white horse. That comes later on when he comes again. You want to imagine the, you know, the president of the United States flying business class or riding a greyhound bus or driving a tractor-trailer, or better yet, maybe even taking Amtrak. See, presidents and kings, they arrive in motorcades, long motorcades, with a security entourage surrounding them, with clearances being issued and making sure that the public is able to see but not really get up close. Jesus comes on a donkey. People are touching him. People are are milling around him. Because he's approachable. Because he's humble. He has this authority which attracts us to him. And we sense it when we're in his presence. But there's also something about that authority that makes us want to be near him. That draws us to him. He wears a Galilean homespun. Remembering that Jesus came not to serve, not to, not to, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So he comes in peace in order to make things right between God and us. There's a, a third reason, I think, too, that Jesus comes riding on a donkey. And this is one I find absolutely compelling. And it, the quote will show up on the, on the screen to my right here. I discovered this reason in a, in a commentary uh, on Zechariah by uh, a former professor of mine at Gordon Conwell, Meredith G. Klein. And Klein writes this. He says, A special designation for the donkey has been found to refer to a particular kind of animal that was used in the death ritual by which ancient covenants were ratified. Accordingly, in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, At the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the donkey on which the Lord rode foreshadowed the cross and the shedding of blood of the new covenant. The donkey cult identified the Lion of Judah as the Lamb of God. Just think about that. Just let that sort of roll into your your consciousness. He rides an animal that has been associated in history as an animal that is sacrificed in order to ratify a covenant. So the one who institutes the new covenant in his blood is riding a very animal that is used to ratify covenants. And so that donkey tells us more than just Jesus is the divine and royal king, more than just this humble leader, But he is, in fact, the sacrifice. And it's not the first time, if you will, that Jesus has been on a donkey. In utero, he was in Mary's womb as she was on a donkey going to Bethlehem. These symbols that run through Scripture that keep pointing us to what Christ does on the cross. And I love how in the the Gospel of Matthew... When Jesus tells the two disciples, go untie the colt, and if anyone asks you why you're doing that, you tell them because the Lord has need of them. Now, look, if the Lord can use a donkey in order to fulfill his mission, certainly he can use men and women who are willing to carry him and his message. But the way that we live, the way that we behave, the way that we teach our children, the way we conduct ourselves at work, the way we present what salt and light is through the gospel. There is this marvelous sense in which the Lord has need of those who are willing to carry his word out into the world. If he can do it with a humble donkey, he can do it with us as well. In fact, he chooses us to do that, deliberately. I was thinking about this this morning. I, was, you know, I have my notes, and I was doing my, my morning reading, as I, as I attempt to do. And I was struck by that line, the Lord has need of them. And thinking about how he uses us for his good, and for our good, and for the good of our neighbor. That he chooses us deliberately to carry his message, And my mind immediately went to these words from the Apostle Paul, which we'll study further when we get to the Bible study in Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians 1-4, these are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Even as he chose us in him, meaning Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's Ephesians 1 4 through 8. It's not on the screen because it just came to me this morning as I was reviewing my notes. So Jesus deliberately chose that donkey, not simply because it was prophesied by Zechariah 500 years before the moment, but he chose that donkey from the foundation of the world. And if he chose that donkey from the foundation of the world, he chose us to carry his message and to be his witnesses and to go forth. With that same message that there is one in whose blood a new covenant has been made. A new relationship established with God by the one who comes not in pomp and ceremony or in power, but in humility. Because in that humility is his power. In that humility is his strength. In that humility is the fulfillment of his mission. And that mission allows us to be at peace with God. And because we then can be at peace with God, we get into verse 10, we can now be at peace with our enemies. Because peace with God carries with it the promise of reconciliation with our enemies. When he writes, when, the, when Zechariah prophesies, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the from the river to the ends of the earth, he is telling us God is going to do a momentous and tremendous thing. Ephraim is a nickname for the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem is a nickname for the southern kingdom of Judah. And God, by destroying the implements of war that these two nations had used against one another in civil war, will now be no more. Because he will bring them together. That as he brings together a divided people, he can then also in Christ bring together a divided world. This is also important because when you get into Ephesians 2, Paul talks about this. How that the Gentiles were strangers and aliens of the covenants of promise. But now, he says, those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, so that in Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, are now made one new being in him. All because Christ has made peace with God for us, we then can be at peace with our enemies. And Jesus does this not with bow, not with sword, not with military armor, not with any kind of military might. But he speaks a word. He speaks a gospel. He speaks peace, wholeness, wellness that arises from The love of God who gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. How does God accomplish this? Zechariah has already told us. Not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. John Calvin writes, Jesus will speak peace to the nations, that is, though He will not use threats or terrors nor bring forth great armies, yet the nations shall obey Him. For there will be no need of employing any force. To speak peace then to the nations means they will calmly hear, though not terrified nor threatened. The truth, when spoken in the name of Christ with respect to the gospel, has an effect upon any and every person who hears it. In this instance, the effect is for their good, for our good, for our salvation, for our reconciliation, for our peace, not only with God, but with one another. The peace with God carries with it the promise of reconciliation with our enemies. And so that raises an important question as we sit here this morning with whom do you need to be reconciled this morning? With whom? Do you need to make peace? If it is a peace between God and you, it is available to you through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is available to you through faith in Him as your Savior and atoning sacrifice. If it is with another brother or sister, it is through that same person. It is through that same gospel. You may not think it's possible to make peace. But we know the scripture says all things with God are possible. It may take time, but reconciliation is possible. As far as it depends on you to be at peace with all people, Paul would tell us in Romans be at peace with all people, extend that olive branch. Extend that offer of reconciliation. Extend that offer of forgiveness. Extend that offer of grace as God has extended it to us. If it is not received, if it is not welcomed, then you have simply done as we have been instructed by God to do. It's possible because Jesus made it possible. Peace with God carries with it that promise of reconciliation with our enemies. Without going into detail, I know this from personal experience, okay? I know what it's like to have an offense and not have the other person able to say the words, I'm sorry, and yet have to forgive. I know what it feels like to have that other person hold, if you will, that thing against you because they won't release. The understanding that they have hurt or injured you. And yet God says, forgive. Let it go. To hold on to it is to give to them a power that is not theirs to wield. But it is a power that only God can use. So forgive. 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 And then lastly, God promises to guarantee that our hope will be rewarded. This is the end of the section, verses 11 to 13 where the prophet is, this is God now speaking through the prophet. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Verse 11 speaks of prisoners being set free because of the blood of my covenant. We know that in the New Testament, the blood of this covenant is Christ's blood. But it is not from a captive nation from which Jesus, our King, shall save us. Because our enemy is far greater, far stronger, far more cruel and far more evil than any nation or king known to man. Because our ultimate enemy The one that ultimately separates from all that is holy, right, and good is sin. The thing that separates us from God is our sin. But the good news is Jesus has come to make atonement for that. The rift that exists between God and us, he has repaired. But it will not be healed ultimately until our sin is forgiven because there can't be any peace between God and us until our sin is atoned for. So enter the King. Enter the Lord Jesus Christ, by whose death sin is atoned for, death is defeated, and the power of evil is broken. We understand that the enemies of Jesus thought he was defeated at the cross. That's what they thought. But as only God could plan it in his economy, the very cross upon which his enemies thought they had triumphed is the very cross by which Christ triumphs over them. So the evil that they sought to do against him becomes the very good that God wants to accomplish through his death, which brings us reconciliation. It fulfills the covenant from before the foundation of the world that existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is how God pulls us out of the waterless pit. He pulls us out of the muck and the mire of our depravity that he might set our feet on solid ground upon the rock that is Christ. And then feed us with living water, wash us from the inside out, anoint us with the Spirit, and then, like Judah, puts us in a bow, and then he sends us forth out into the world to tell others this marvelous truth about a God who saves when he doesn't have to. About a God who loves when he has every right to condemn. About a God who forgives when he has every right to hold that grudge. About a God who sheds his blood for us so that we go out to the Gentiles, and we bring with us the very message of that gospel. There's an illusion and a connection here with the prophet Isaiah when Zechariah talks about double. We are given a double for our sins, says Isaiah and says Zechariah, a double. We're saved by grace. We receive the gift of eternal life. When we receive double, if you will, double we deserve rather double punishment, we receive in its place a double blessing. Saved by grace, receive the gift of eternal life. Because the cross is where we cross over from death to life. It's where we exit the kingdom of this world and enter the kingdom of God. Only those we know who are born again by faith in Christ, through the work of God's grace, enter that kingdom. Enter that stronghold. And those who enter that stronghold become prisoners of hope. But better to be a prisoner of hope than a prisoner of despair, a prisoner of desperation, a prisoner of despondency, a prisoner of an addiction, a prisoner of a belief that somehow power is attained through making more money, having the right connections, where power is, where, where, where hope is, is attached to continually driving for more and more and more. To be a prisoner of hope is to be captivated by God's promise of eternal life by grace through faith in Christ. You know, to look at it in terms of just a more homely example, you know, a prisoner of hope is a child that's waiting for Christmas. I can remember as a kid, maybe your kids do the same thing, our kids certainly did, that they would... As soon as a new calendar you would, would come up, they they flip the pages, they, where is Christmas? And they would circle it. And they would just, it would, and it would just sort of count the days. So a prisoner of hope is like a child waiting for Christmas. A prisoner of hope is a pregnant woman waiting to deliver. It's a cancer patient undergoing chemotherapy. It's a single person waiting for God to fulfill them as a prisoner of hope. It's a saint who's lying on his or her deathbed, waiting for that moment when they close their eyes on this world and open them to behold their king in the next. It's a, way, it's a mother who is consistently and devotedly praying for a wayward child. That's a prisoner of hope, trusting that God will keep his promise. Prisoners of hope live in hope and confidence that their prayers will be answered. And Zechariah directs his words to prisoners of hope. Do not give up hope. God is faithful. He will keep his promise. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He will not abandon us. He will never give up on us. He cannot. He cannot. Because (laughs) he made a covenant with us. We sang, Christ is mine forevermore, and that is a glorious truth. We could just as easily and just as correctly sing, I am Christ's forevermore. What can you accomplish? What can you do if you are confident that you are Christ's forevermore? Held firmly by his grace, held forever in his grasp by the confidence we have. So let's sing Christ is mine forevermore. But let us also remember words like Ephesians 1 that tell us we are his forevermore. Someone has said a long time ago that hope has an eternal home in the human heart. That as long as there is future, there is hope. So God is the only source of our hope. Hope is the heartbeat of our faith And faith is simply trusting God in the present based on what he's done for us in the past so that we'll depend on him in the future. I don't know what you do when you find hope sort of slipping or becoming very thin in your life. I hope that you would turn to the word of God. I hope that you would turn to the the scripture and and find some comfort there. I I know that when I find my hope getting thin, uh, one of the verses I turn to is Romans 5, 1 through 5, I had a, a mentor in North Dakota that whenever I would go through or a friend of his was going through a difficult time, he kind of spoke like Jack Nicholson, which made this all the more kind of you know intimidating. They're like, well, it looks like you're going through a Romans 5 experience. <laughs> Gotta just trust the Lord. You know, it's like have to expect him to say, you can't handle the truth. But Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You could stop right there. But there's more. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus is our hope because he came in peace to make peace between God and us. It's no longer, um, I think you can only access them online, but I remember uh, years ago, and some of you I think are, are big fans of Bill Watterson and his Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic strip, there's always a highlight of the Sunday paper to open Calvin and Hobbes. My grandson has the anthology. My youngest son learned how to read by reading Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is, this, is basically a comic strip in which there's a six-year-old boy who has a pet stuffed tiger that comes to life when no one is around. And the two of them engage in these very deep philosophical discussions about life and the meaning of life. And it's very, very insightful comments that Watterson would make, and there's one particular uh, comic uh, with Calvin and Hobbes in which the two of them are uh, sitting on top of a snow-covered hill on a toboggan. And there's, you can just see the way that Watterson has drew the cartoon, drawn the cartoon. There's fear in Calvin's eyes, and he says, "Well, here we are, poised." on the precipice of Paul Bearer Peak, on a flimsy, unsteerable sled. The mind recoils in horror to imagine the awful descent. Yes, it's a thousand foot vertical drop onto a boulder field lined with pricker bushes. It's a journey calculated to exceed the human capacity for blinding fear. He turns to Hobbes and he says, are you ready to go? And Hobbes simply says, ready? And in the last scene, you see Calvin and Hobbes walking away from the peak of Precipice Peak. So then you think nearly 2,000 years ago on the Mount of Olives, there Jesus sat on a donkey that had never had a rider, peering over the precipice of his own crucifixion he considered the suffering and humiliation his descent into the city would mean. And with his face set like flint, his heart primed for the ride of his life, he heard the father ask him, Are you ready to go? And with a steely eye and a firmness of voice, he said, Ready. And down he rode. To make peace between God and us. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, help us to be in awe of what you continue to do through the work of your Son. And from that awe, let us with humility and love and compassion and great tenderness not only follow you, but share this wonderful story, this wonderful news, this truth that Christ has come in peace to make peace between God and us. Help us, Lord God, to love you and to love our neighbor, even as ourselves, in this wonderful endeavor. We thank you, Christ, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.